That's the Love Dust Rag, generously provided by Matt Norton. Hello everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Love Dust, a podcast on love, dating, and relationships in the modern world. I'm your host, Marvin, and Love Dust refers both to the fairy-like dust that enchants, exalts, ennobles, and transforms our experience of the world, and the grime of hurt, bitterness, confusion, and resentment that sours it. In short, the miseries and the glories of our shared romantic lives. Over the course of this conversation, and I hope it will be a conversation with all of you out there, I want to dissect and diagnose the cultural norms, practices, habits, images, and attitudes upon which such dust has settled. Topics will range from the prosaic and the banal, the two-day rule, texting versus calling, sex on the first date, to larger sociological terrain, race and dating, online dating, which will be a recurring motif, still race and dating for that matter, alternatives to monogamy, polyamory, and open relationships. From the aesthetic representations that circulate in television, film, music, and literature, the modern and classic rom-com, The Bachelor, to the language of love and dating, undateable, out of one's league, the friend zone. I went to think long and hard with all of you out there about how these ideas and larger cultural forms manifest themselves in our collective consciousness and in our daily lives, examining whether these conceptions and practices are consistent with human dignity and flourishing, with thoughtfulness, consideration, and care, and if they are not, to change them. I want to shift the conversation about love, dating, and relationships, placing ethics squarely at the center. And I want your help. Love will never be fair, but it can be decent, or at least more decent. And precisely because it is so unfair, we must make every effort to insist on that decency. At this point, I should say a little bit more about myself. I am 31 years old, with a Puritan's commitment to plain living and high thinking. I'm a teacher and a poet, but most important for this podcast, I am a romantic, albeit a lapsed one. I'll say more as we go along, but this isn't really about me so much as my position. The great Sufi singer Abida Parveen once said of herself, I'm not a man or a woman, I'm a vehicle for passion, and I feel much the same way. As a vehicle for passion, I am someone who has done a great deal on behalf of my heart and wishes in retreating from the field to put my experience in the service of yours. My own love story in brief is this. For roughly 10 years, for most of my 20s, from 18 to 28, I went entirely unnoticed by women. I could not get a look to save my life much less a hearing, a date, a relationship. I did just about everything to make it otherwise, to change my story. Love letters, poems, stalwart declarations, ritual sacrifices to the gods, running through the rain kind of shit. I never flew cross-country, as some of my friends have, heaven help them, but I would have, had that kind of gesture made any kind of sense. On behalf of my heart, I made terrible compromises with my self-respect. I begged, I pleaded, I cajoled, I abased myself. I don't regret any of the choices I made. I never will. If only because only I paid for them. And because, contrary to popular belief, the payment isn't that bad. You can't really die from humiliation, after all. What you can regret, if not exactly die from, are the approaches unmade, the questions unposed, the feelings unspoken, the confessions foreclosed. Those are the phantom choices that haunt your dreamless sleep, conjuring counterfactuals that you'll never be able to disprove or perhaps even banish. What might have been, what could have been, what should have happened. Then a couple weeks shy of my 28th birthday, without any explanation whatsoever, the long drought ended, the story changed itself, and a couple of dates came my way. I was a late bloomer, 
as the phrase goes. So I decided to see how long the bloom might last over the next two years, forming a resolve to find the love of my life within that time frame, or failing that, to gain enough traction to convince myself that I would someday soon find her, or failing that, to break my will and let hope wither on the vine. Several hundred messages, and by several hundred I mean over 700. Half a dozen dating apps and online sites, 85 dates, two relationships, and two years later, I turned 30 and decided to call time of death, no longer having the heart or the stomach for the search. During that madcap time, I dated lots of wonderful, smart, beautiful, and accomplished women, one of whom I subsequently became good friends with. Lauren, I'm looking at you. And one of whom I loved very, very much. I grew enormously as a person, and of course found myself mixed up in some hilarious hijinks, collecting ridiculous stories familiar to anyone who has spent enough time online dating. Stories that will crop up from time to time on the podcast. But I didn't find a woman to build a life with. And I didn't think, whatever else might change in my life, that that would. What I also learned, not only from my own experience, but from conversations with my friends, is that people are too careless, too thoughtless, too feckless, too disingenuous about what they are looking for and what they want, too lacking in any degree of moral seriousness, all of which made continuing with my quest impossible. I wasn't enjoying myself anymore. I was beginning to call out bad behavior, and I didn't get into this to be a babysitter or a hall monitor. Scold doesn't suit me. It doesn't really suit anyone. Hence this podcast, with its brazen attempt to change the conversation, to repair what we have broken, to inspirit the thrilling charms of love. I wanted to affirm my deepest values, not merely criticize the practices which seem so woefully inadequate to our self-respect as desiring beings, and insufficient to the demands of those who offer us their most secret heart for our safekeeping. I have no training or expertise in psychology, counseling, sociology, etc., to support the conclusions I will draw, though I will discuss studies when they seem apposite. I have no sage advice to render those who feel lost, I'm sorry to say, nor any hope to hold out to those like me who have been luckless, which I am even sorrier to say. Believe me. But I have a reasonably clear-eyed perspective on what a more humane and sensible love might look like, and the commitment to bring such a vision into being. You see, true romantics are never hopeless even the lapsed ones. To the nice, competent people who have failed as spectacularly as I have, or worse. To those dreamy, dopey, intrepid souls who I believe O. Henry had in mind when he addressed the lost, the lonely, the rapturous in his 1906 story, The Green Door. To my fellow failed romantics, I have a particular message to impart, and it is important, so listen up. I want to tell you what I wish someone told me during my search. Don't for a second believe the conventional wisdom. Not one second. You're doing everything right. You have done everything right. Sure, I don't doubt you've made mistakes. We all have, and perhaps more than you care to admit. I know I have, but your difficulties in love will never be solved by listening to what the world by and large tells you to do. For the conventional wisdom the world offers is often awful and always beside the point. It's awful because such advice usually amounts a little more than withholding strategizing, engaging in the moronic bullshit of gamesmanship and emotional unavailability. In short, some version or variant of playing it cool. And it is beside the point for two reasons. 
One, if you are someone who approaches dating in a straightforward and conscientious way, you'll never be able to follow the conventional wisdom well enough to make much difference. Not as well as someone who truly believes in it, someone naturally conventional. Because at bottom, you don't really believe in it. Secondly, even if you could fake that belief convincingly enough, no one likes a person because they follow a particular script well. If they like you, they will by and large like you regardless. For better or for worse, there is actually very little you can do to win someone over if they are not prepared to be won over by you. Lastly, and most importantly, who wants to be conventional in that way anyway? What is the appeal, the value? If you figure it out, please explain it to me. I can't see the sense. You can't control the outcome, but you can control the terms. And while moral victories aren't actual victories, they aren't failures either. Not all victories are even victories, as many unhappy couples can readily attest. So own the terms that you live by. Be the best version of yourself however hackneyed that might sound, and consider joining me and advocating for those terms that are so worthwhile. Openness, sincerity, affection, enthusiasm. Give a shit and insist on those who give a shit about you, who recognize your fundamental and enduring value. I was recently reading the relationship column in New York Magazine called Ask Polly, and while I usually find myself in broad agreement with her advice, though I do quarrel with the tone a little bit, she was in especially rare form this time. A 36-year-old woman had written to ask if she had missed her chance at love, blaming herself for the perceived failure and asking, among other things, whether she should try to make herself more palatable to potential partners. In response, Polly summoned some of her finest rhetoric, commanding this petitioner who identified herself as Miss the Boat in the following way. Shout to the sky, I am girly. I love kids. I love building fires. I love baking cakes. I have feelings. I am not cool. I will never be cool. I am made of magic. After shouting it to the sky myself, and I urge you to do the same, whatever your gender, whatever your feelings about children or baked goods or campfires, I posted an image of the quote on Instagram with the caption, this is the best romantic advice I have ever seen given in the history of the world. Man or woman, straight or queer, trans or cis, own your shit and make your magic. If no one is enchanted, who gives a shit? You are still magic. That is what you owe yourself. So damn well demand it. What you owe other people is simple. And here I defer to the extraordinarily gifted comedian Aisha Tyler, who I love and admire beyond all measure. In a recent episode of her wildly brilliant podcast, Girl on Guy, Tyler articulated to her friend and fellow podcaster, Alison Rosen, the best statement I have heard on dating in my entire life, the sum of Love Dust's entire ethical position. Everyone is responsible for their own feelings, but don't be a dick. It really is that simple. So let's start acting like it is that simple. Act two, Charlotte Lucas. What happens when you aren't a dick? When you are, in fact, your best self? When you open yourself to the promise of a fulfilled and final human connection? When you drop the pose and the preening, the masks and the misdirection? When you insist that the point is to make oneself manifest, legible, plain, illuminating all the shadowy and silent and soft parts of your inmost self as far as you are able and to see the person who has disclosed themselves to you in turn? Well, then you might just run into the person of your dreams as I think I may have done about a month ago. That, my friends, is magic too. This woman I will call Charlotte Lucas, in honor of the most unsung heroine from Jane Austen, perhaps not even properly speaking an Austen heroine at all. 
because like her neglected namesake from Pride and Prejudice, she had achieved a hard-won wisdom, a moral courage, a staggering grace under pressure, to borrow what Hemingway identified as a central masculine virtue. To her best friend and neighbor Elizabeth Bennet, who is known to many readers of the novel and its film adaptations, Charlotte Lucas has to defend herself for her choice in marriage to the fatuous clergyman Mr. Collins, and she does so with unblanching self-respect, surpassing someone who has been in the novel just about unsurpassed. Elizabeth sparkles with wit and fine judgment, marries Mr. Darcy, securing the blessings of Pemberley, and salvages her dull-as-dishwater sister Jane's marriage to Mr. Bingley. She is amazing, as many readers have recognized, and I would never dispute that judgment. Who could? But here the triumph is not hers. Charlotte will not stand for Lizzie's rebuke, nor should she, as much as she respects her friend, as much as she indeed loves her. Charlotte is Lizzie's truest sister, and nonetheless insists on their difference, saying in what I imagine is a quiet but forceful way, I was never romantic, you know. The clear subtext being, I didn't have that luxury. The marriage market was brutal, patriarchy and actual political system in those days, and Charlotte Lucas, while equal to Lizzie in every other way, and certainly in every way that counts, is neither young nor good-looking nor rich enough to secure for herself such a suitor. Even for Lizzie, Darcy is the height of improbability, and Bingley for Jane, too. Forget about proposing marriage to either sister, they wouldn't even be likely to settle in the same neighborhood as the Bennett household. Thankfully, the world has changed. The Charlotte I met is by no rational reckoning doomed to spend her life with Mr. Collins, a man who is no doubt a hopeless and insufferable pedant and snob. She is brilliant, fearless, and one of the most beautiful women I have seen in my entire life. But like Austen's creation, she had taught herself to make do, despite wanting love in her life as fiercely as I do, and to thrive no less for the lack. But I tried and failed to have my students see when I taught Austen's novel that Lizzie is dead wrong about Charlotte. Is something my companion that evening figured out long ago, whether she's read the novel or not. However dear to us mo modern subjects, however dear indeed to Austen herself, Lizzie is pure wish fulfillment and needs to grow up. She does, eventually. But Charlotte's ass has grown. Thus, when Lizzie visits her newly betrothed friend later in the novel, Austen shows us and her that we should not feel sorry for Charlotte's fate. She would not want the pity, nor even understand it. Our usually perceptive heroine, searching her friend's face for regret, finds none. Lizzie Bennet, usually so wise, nodded. I did not make the same mistake, well aware that this remarkable woman had made as apt a decision for herself. Perhaps because I am Charlotte, too. That's the meandering preface. Here's the story. Having recently defended my dissertation and thus secured my doctorate, woo woo, I dropped by the bar that has become my regular place to mark the occasion. I had already celebrated with a few friends. Now I sought a moment for myself. The bartenders, while pleasant enough, were not especially solicitous. The other patrons, largely couples, were absorbed by their own lives. And while I found myself falling into an extended flirtation with the hostess when I entered, I decided not to press anything in that way. She is too young and you are retired, I said to myself. Don't be an idiot. Plus, this has become your place. You saw the episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry dated the hostess. It does not end well. Yes, you asked out a hostess once before at one of your other favorite places, and it ended up being all right. But you got lucky there. Now, since then, I have ended up getting the hostess's number, but that's neither here nor there. 
and represented more a reflex than any real move on my part. To return to the night in question, I retreated inward and happily enjoyed my beer when I became drawn into conversation with a new set of patrons who entered the bar. Feeling rather expansive, I humored a couple of gentlemen who encroached upon my silence, and when a rather striking woman sat between one of those men and myself, perhaps returning to the seat she had vacated, I attended first to her drink, then to her presence. She was alone, a rare sight. And while I don't take a woman being alone as an invitation to approach her, I did take note, precisely because it doesn't happen often. Likely on account of the fact women know all too well that men do take it as an invitation. When I thought I caught her looking in my direction, I didn't see the harm of making some pleasant conversation, and if she wanted to be left alone, I'd let the matter drop. I think I asked if she was enjoying her drink, and that was sufficient a pretext. It never has to be much, it barely has to be anything, to get something started. I complimented her dress pretty early on in our conversation. She told me it was only from Target and remarked proudly that it often elicited compliments. Perhaps on second thought, that was the starting point. From there, we spoke for at least the next two hours, possibly three, about Japan, South America. She was going to Argentina or perhaps Chile. I had been to Brazil. Malbec, nuclear disaster, child rearing, dating, exchanging compliments and a few chase touches along the way. When I finally asked her if I could buy her a drink, realizing the unspoken question could be averted no longer, she declined. I thought she might be leaving, but when she bought herself one a few minutes later, I knew then she was either diverted by my company but not finally interested, in other words, she was humoring me, or that she was seeing someone. Satisfying myself that I wasn't bothering her, I asked her if she'd like to be left alone. I realized the latter was correct. I still wanted to make sure, asking in a genuinely curious way, you're getting a drink but not letting me buy you one. Can I ask you why? She confessed to seeing someone and not wanting to lead me on, so I thanked her for her honesty and her tact, and she, noticing the disappointment by now written all over my face, reassured me she was enjoying the conversation, which enabled me to regain my footing. I took the hand she had generously extended me and pulled myself together. The reset button having been pressed, we continued talking with the same intensity, and our conversation entered its most personal phases. Each of us frank about our romantic disappointments, our frustrations, our pains, and our labors are hurt. We were vulnerable with each other in a way no one ever is, much less in the company of a stranger. I couldn't help but feel glad she had made it to the other side once I heard her speak so eloquently about herself, whether this relationship was her one or not, whether she ever found her one. I knew she'd be all right. She was a model of acceptance, clarity, calm. She knew she'd be all right, too. In short, talking to her was perfect, not least of all because she provided a stark reminder at the precise moment I perhaps needed it the most that everything might have worked out differently for me, that it might always work out differently for everyone, even when it doesn't. Even with her, one hair's breadth of difference, and the uninterested man she chatted up at the same bar before she became involved with her current partner of four months, a tale she relayed to me with some self-deprecation and perhaps a little rue. Well, it would have been me, and I would have been interested, as I remarked to her with a little rue myself. Perhaps she was simply being kind, but when she twice said that if she wasn't involved, she would have hoped I'd call, the only thing I could do was murmured to myself, I would have, Charlotte. 
Meeting her also promised a way forward. Here was someone exceptional who had suffered, but found the strength to carry on in defeat. She did not give me hope, either that her status would change or, or that mine would. I know better than that. Only the fortitude to move beyond hope, into what Camus might call some terrible freedom. Buoyed by our intimacy, our mutual respect, our sheer and unvarnished delight in one another's company, I grabbed a nearby napkin, hastily wrote my name and number on it, and in plain view, unzipped her purse that was resting on the bar and slipped in the napkin with more or less this statement. Amazed at my gumption. Okay, here's the deal. Of course you can throw this number out as soon as you leave this bar. And please know, I mean absolutely no disrespect to you and your partner. I really do hope it works out. But on the off chance it doesn't, I want to be first in line. On the infinitesimally small chance you are listening now, let me tell you once more, dear and delightful optometrist who helped me see a little more clearly that evening, thank you for the drink you bought me to celebrate my defense, for our bracing and beautiful conversation, for your astonishing kindness and lapidary elegance, for the core and marrow of who you are. I don't know you, and I never will, but I know enough. You don't need me to tell you this. You don't need anyone to tell you this, but it deserves to be acknowledged all the same. Out of a bowed respect for the simple truth and the plain justice of the world we make our home in. You are one of the finest human beings I have ever met in my life. And don't let anyone or anything, now or forever, in this world or the next, make you doubt your supreme and abiding value. Never let the fire go out. Charlotte didn't. Next time on Love Dust. Spurred by a recent article in the New York Times, which you can find a link to in the description, we are going to spend the next episode discussing fading out or ghosting, the practice of signaling a lack of interest in someone you've been on a date with or are dating in a more extended way by disappearing and ignoring them. I'd like to hear from you about your own experiences with this practice. Have you or has someone close to you been ghosted? Have you ghosted someone else? How did it make you feel when you're on either end of that exchange? Is ghosting an acceptable practice? Why or why not? If not, how should you indicate a lack of interest in someone who is interested in seeing you more? Send all stories, thoughts, musings, rants, cogitations, heart-rending cries to a handful of love dust at gmail.com. That's all one word, a handful of love dust at gmail.com. You can also leave a text or voicemail message at 323-546-8652 with your thoughts on this subject if you prefer. You can find Love Dust on Facebook and Google+, as well as on Twitter, at Ashes to Love Dust, and Instagram, lovedust underscore podcast. Love Dust also has a website with show notes and articles of note at lovedust-podcast.tumblr.com. All this contact information can be found in the episode's description as well. The podcast itself is listed on SoundCloud and soon will be available in the iTunes store. So if you're digging what I'm cooking up, I'd really appreciate you rating me five stars in the iTunes store and leaving a comment. I'll be sure to give you a shout out and my endless gratitude. If you're not digging it, bear with me. I'm learning as I go along here, people. In any event, I look forward to hearing from you. I look forward to sharing my thoughts and engaging with yours. And I look forward, on the basis of both, to collectively forging ahead with what the great German poet Rilke called the difficult work of love. I hope you feel the same. Thank you for listening, take care of yourself, and I'll talk to you soon. 
Love from Love Dust.